Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the uh, bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And this morning, we will continue our study through Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, John 2, 23 to 319. I think it's crucial to understand this as one unit. And as we've mapped out the next couple weeks, the plan is to keep going through through the Christmas season. This week, dealing with you must be born again. Next week, for the Cantata Sunday, the Son of Man must be lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness. And then Christmas Day, I think quite fittingly, John 3.16, God's gift of love in sending his Son. And then we'll finish the section with the judgment of light and darkness coming into the world on New Year's Day. That's the plan, anyway, um, Lord willing. But I'd like to begin our time by reading uh, John chapter 2, 23 to 319. We'll have a word of prayer. <clears throat> now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Lord God, as we study this passage, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would grant um, the life, the new birth, that you might beget faith and sons and daughters, that we might understand when Nicodemus misunderstood, that we might hear Christ's warning, and that we might draw further, closer still, that we might um, experience the new birth and the life that comes with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus and Nicodemus one of the most well-known, familiar passages. It became popular, I think, with Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, and with Billy Graham's ministry. That, that became a common, if not dominant, term for evangelical Christianity. I'm a born-again Christian. This is the primary passage that term comes out of. The New Testament will use regeneration, and John in 1 John will speak of being born again or born of God, but, but here most commonly and well-known is that expression found in Jesus' challenge to Nicodemus. Now, because it's so well-known, the danger is we, we might think we understand it. That's part of the reason why I belabored the last three verses of chapter two last week. I think those verses set up and frame the encounter with Nicodemus. Last week, we considered how strange it was, how odd, befuddling, that in a gospel stated to be written so that we might believe, and that by believing, we have life in his name. In a gospel that in chapter 1, verse 12, promises to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to then read at the end of chapter 2, here are some who saw Jesus' miracles, and they believed in his name, and instead of he gave them the right to become children of God. We read in 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And we, th that, I think, by John is meant to, to, to slow us down, like a speed bump, like, whoa, what's going on? And we considered that even though the gospel calls believe, believe and be saved, it's not believe plus or minus anything. In John's gospel, there are many examples of growing faith, degrees of faith, types of faith, and there's at least three examples where people are said to believe in some sense. And yet in John chapter eight, we saw the Jews who believed in Jesus, whom Jesus spoke to the Jews who believed in him, were sons of the devil trying to kill him. And so we see in John's gospel, there's faith, and then there's faith, and once that's raised, now we want to pay close attention that the faith we have, the faith we confess, is what John's talking about. And I suggest to you that Nicodemus then, and the encounter with Nicodemus, is meant to demonstrate this faith in signs that Jesus does not entrust himself to. We see the verbal connections. If you just ignore the end of the chapter divisions, we read, he himself knew it was in man, there was a man. The ESV is now, it's, it's just de, and, or but, and there was a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do the signs that you do 
unless God is with him. Here's a man who believes something about Jesus because he saw signs, just like the people in 2.23. Jesus, was, he was when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So here's an example. Here's somebody in Jerusalem who saw Jesus do signs and comes to him with an orthodox confession. There's nothing in Nicodemus' confession that is untrue. It's just not enough. It's insufficient. It's a good start. And we know from Nicodemus' later appearances in John's gospel, first in chapter 7, where he's, if not defending Jesus, holding back the Pharisees from rash judgment, saying, well, hold on, hold on. Does our law condemn a man until it gives him a hearing? And then in chapter 19, going and getting the body of Jesus and, and giving it a proper burial being publicly identified as a disciple. We know where Nicodemus ends up. And so we, we have to avoid two temptations. One is viewing Nicodemus because we know the end of his story as though that's who he is here. We know Nicodemus becomes a disciple. We know Nicodemus becomes one who publicly identifies with Jesus, honors him, buries him. That, that's not the state he's in here. We, we saw that last week. Clearly, in verse 11, I, truly, truly, of chapter 3, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, Nicodemus, whatever's going on here, does not receive Jesus' testimony, and he does not believe what Jesus says. He will, but right here, he doesn't. And in that sense, then, Nicodemus is one who saw signs, believed some things in Jesus' name, and yet it's not enough. He, he exemplifies the last paragraph of chapter 2. I, I argued that's how we're to understand the encounter. It's not to say he's all negative. The other error we've got to make, avoid making. We don't need to make an error. The other error we need to avoid making is vilifying him too much. This insufficient faith isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not enough. Everything he says is orthodox. Everything he says is true about Jesus. It's just not enough yet. And so we don't want to vilify him in this encounter or make him too good of a guy in this encounter. Make no mistake, he is not receiving Jesus' testimony yet. What Jesus says to him, he does not receive and believe, even about his own deadness, his need to be born again. He will, I believe, the master evangelist knows what's in man and knows what he needs to say to man. But what we're going to look at here, and this is, this is where it's practical for us, I think there are many in churches in America, maybe some here, who have some tipping of the hat, some recognition, some allegiance to Jesus. They believe something about him. And yet, perhaps they have not, as John says, believed he is God, the Son of God, their sacrifice. For anyone who's sitting on the fence, for anyone who isn't sure what they make with Jesus, Nicodemus can be your, your stand-in, and we can see what Jesus says to him. And, and we can receive that as well. We're going to look at this along three points. You must be born again. First, the necessity of the new birth. The necessity of the new birth. Now, John gives us this introduction. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So let's begin with Nicodemus' identity. Nicodemus' identity. 
We're told two things about him here and one thing later. First, he is a Pharisee, and we learn in chapter 11, I mean verse 11, sorry, no, 10, sorry, in verse 10, that he's a teacher or the teacher of Israel, which is to say he is advanced in religion. The Pharisees was, were a, a grassroots, Bible teaching, Bible school starting group intent on calling Israel back to faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant. At least that was their charter. That was the, they came back from Babylon. They realized what God had done in, in taking them from the land. And they, they started off great, as best as we can tell. Little Bible schools, little synagogues in every town. The reading of this Torah, of the scripture, weekly on the Sabbath. The Pharisees have already made an appearance in John's gospel. If you turn back to chapter one, if you remember, after the prologue, John the Baptist is seen testifying to Jesus, and we're told in verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? But we're told just a little later, in verse 24, more specifically, that they had been sent from the Pharisees. So we've got Pharisees located in Jerusalem, and at least this group of Pharisees very intent on sizing up and evaluating John the Baptist. Well, now we're still in Jerusalem, as I'm arguing this is connected with the end of chapter two, and here we have a Pharisee coming to Jesus. So he's a Pharisee and a teacher of Israel, but he's also a ruler of the Jews. Now those two are not necessarily concurrent. In John's gospel, they're seen as separate offices. One speaks to religious prestige and advancement. The other, some sort of geopolitical, social rule. He's a ruler in some political sense. Um, we, we see that it's not necessarily referring to religious rule. It's actually some sort of civil function. Some sort of civil function. A ruler of the Jews, just to demonstrate this, in John ooh. 748, the Pharisees scoffing at the notion that Jesus is the Messiah say, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They view them as two different groups. Now you could be in the two different groups, but it's, it's saying two distinct things. And I think the point for us is, is Nicodemus is advanced both religiously and politically. He's got some sense of rulership among the people politically and he's a Pharisee, and later we're going to learn not just a Pharisee, the teacher or a teacher in Israel, which is, I think, to say, if we're having a stand-in or an exemplar for this sort of belief that yet Jesus doesn't respond to, this is going to be as good as it gets. This guy is, is well-advanced. If pedigree and accomplishments and standing matter, this is your guy. This is your guy. Now, we get to Nicodemus's. Conf oh, and he comes by night. I need to pause and talk about him coming by night. What's the significance of him coming by night? I, I think most directly, if you look to the end of this encounter, turn to 19. And we know this is the end because verse 22 in chapter 3 starts after this. So this is all one encounter. In 3.19, either Jesus speaking or John the Gospel writer speaking, it's not entirely clear if and when Jesus stops speaking and John the Gospel writer starts speaking because they don't have quotation marks in Greek. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen 
that his works have been carried out in God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. By the way, that's repeated in chapter 19. When, Jesus, when Nicodemus goes to collect the body, it says Nicodemus would come by night. John's already set up this light and darkness motif back in chapter 1. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I would suggest to you, why does he come by night? Probably practically, because he's ashamed, embarrassed, nervous about being seen. And in the scope of John's gospel, this emphasis, we know which side of this equation, the lighter darkness side, he's in right here. At the end of chapter three, the summary statement, Nicodemus has not come to Jesus to show that his works have been wrought in God, which means at this point, he's standing in the other lane. He's gonna switch lanes. He will become a disciple. But right here and right now, this is not someone who loves the light, coming to the light to show that his works have been wrought in God. He's in the other path. I think that's the significance of him coming by night. And Jesus' response is, oh, no, the confession. I'm skipping. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. That is holy orthodox. Totally true. Nothing incorrect. Jesus has already received the title rabbi, teacher, from his disciples in chapter 1 without complaint. And it's true, Jesus is come from God, Jesus is working signs, Jesus is a teacher, God is with him. That's all true. A plus, as far as that goes. Which makes Jesus' response to Nicodemus' confession, I think somewhat startling, striking. Uh, again, it's hard to remember the first time we read this because this is so well known. I can think back 20, 21 years ago when I first read this, and I was a little taken aback at how you wouldn't want to say rude, maybe curt, direct, even seeming possibly impolite. Nicodemus comes with what seems to be a polite, respectful address. Nicodemus, talking about being an old man and given his advancement as being a Pharisee, probably a decade or more older than Jesus, attained to political and religious station. Jesus is an, is an unappointed rabbi. And this leader, this ruler, this Pharisee, this teacher addresses Jesus as a peer in some sense. Teacher. He's the teacher. The teacher calls Jesus a teacher. And he makes this declaration. We, we know you're from God. And Jesus' response is, is not, well, thank you, Nicodemus. I'm glad you noticed that. Let me tell you some more. Rather, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus' challenge is, is a jarring, perhaps, when I first read this. I want to note one other thing. There's a little pomposity here in Nicodemus' part. Notice the we. We know. Nicodemus is, is speaking for some group of people behind him, whether or not he's just, we sometimes do this ourselves, we don't like this or whatever. He's probably not sent by them. But he's, he's aware, and he's aware there's more people than just him who've, who've noticed Jesus, and he's speaking on their behalf. We know that's going on because Jesus begins responding in plural use, even in his first response here in, in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you all. So Nicodemus shows up representing that he's speaking for some people, uh, perhaps just on his own desire, not necessarily that they sent him necessarily, although going and sizing up 
religious activity is something we've seen the Pharisees care greatly about. It's in keeping with their concerns. Nicodemus is speaking for a group of people, and Jesus, in return, answers him, recognizing he's speaking for a group of people. So Jesus' challenge, his response, his challenge. Truly, truly, I say to you, and I put all there to emphasize He's getting that Nicodemus is claiming to speak for people, and he responds as though Nicodemus is speaking for people. What Jesus is saying, in other words, is not specifically just true for Nicodemus. It's true for all those people, and likewise, all of us as well. Jesus looks at this representative and says, this is true for you, and it goes for all of you. Jesus' formula, truly, truly, I say to you, is what he says when he's got solemn significant, certain truth. You can depend on this. He's already said it to Nathaniel. He's going to say it 25 times in this gospel. In fact, it marks the dialogue here. Every response to Nicodemus begins with this. Notice um, in verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you. This is, these are the discourse markers. The pattern of the interactions. Nicodemus says something. Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you. Nicodemus responds, truly, truly, I say to you. Nicodemus responds a third time, truly, truly, I say to you. And Nicodemus is going to drop out of this story. The dialogue stops being a dialogue and becomes a monologue around verse 16, which is actually good for Nicodemus. This great man, this ruler, this teacher in Israel, this Pharisee, the biggest statement he makes is in his first statement. I think it's 24 words. In Greek, then that gets halved, and then that gets halved, and then he drops out. Whereas Jesus is talking more and more, and starting in really verse 16, if that is still Jesus speaking, it's a monologue. The teacher of Israel, the Pharisee, the the ruler of the Jews, just fades into the background of this scene as the master lays out his identity. So Jesus responds, truly, truly, this is the first of three occurrences, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in what sense is that a response to what Nicodemus has said? Well, I underlined the words that that bounce off each other. Nicodemus' confession is, no one can or is able to do these things you do unless. That's the the common wordplay. The ability to do something limited by unless God is with him. And then Jesus' response is, let me tell you something else you cannot do unless God that, that's, that's the interplay. That's how this is a response. So Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs, no one is able to do the signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus' response is taking the same concept and pushing it back in Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that word again can also be translated from above. I think that's probably Jesus' meaning, and it's clear Nicodemus doesn't pick up on that. But you're probably have a footnote in your Bible saying either born again or born from above. So so what is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? How how does this fit with what's just happened? What's going on? Well, I think Nicodemus' opening salvo has a sort of implied question. Let me me read a a quote from D.A. Carson's commentary. Nicodemus has not yet asked anything, though the implied question seems to be something like, who are you then? We know you're a teacher from God, but are you more? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Something like that. 
And, and from what we've seen in the past, and Nicodemus even coming by, he's on he's an information-gathering mission. I think it's fair to say Nicodemus is here to try to figure out who Jesus is. You're from God. God's with you. He's working in you. You're doing signs. Implied, who are you? Jesus' answer also, I think, shows and connects with the end of chapter 2 that he knows what's in man. He knows what's on the inside of Nicodemus. He can cut to the quick. He can, he can go and lay the axe to the root of what's really going on. See, a blank number one here. Nicodemus is unable to see Jesus rightly. Nicodemus is unable to see Jesus rightly. I'll read further in this quotation by Carson. Jesus' words are more than a response to his implied question. The fundamental presupposition behind the opening words of Nicodemus is the ability of Nicodemus to assess the evidence Jesus might care to advance. Nicodemus, like other Jews, wants to set up a criteria by which he can assess who Jesus is, like the the Jews in the temple who said, what sign do you give? Jesus rejects the priority of Nicodemus and radically questions his qualifications for sorting out such things. In other words, Nicodemus has come, the teacher of Israel, a Pharisee, a ruler. We've noticed some stuff. Presumably he's here to try to figure out who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying in response, what makes you think you're in a condition to see? What makes you think you're in a position where you can rightly appraise me? In other words, Nicodemus has too high of an estimation of his own abilities. And so Jesus' opening statement is, Nicodemus, unless God births you, that's I think what we're going to see, unless the Spirit births you, you can't see God's kingdom activity. You can't see what's going on. You can't make sense of it. Which, to a Pharisee and a teacher in Israel and a ruler, has got to be a humbling blow. Nicodemus is unable to see Jesus rightly, which means his knowledge, his position, and birth are insufficient. They're of no advantage. Nicodemus is in the same desperate condition you and I are, being born of the tribe of Israel, being born of Abraham's seed, being studied in the Torah, being given civic leadership and rule, all things that we might think might make someone a, a prime candidate is, is dependent upon new birth, new birth. Nicodemus comes, I think, to size up Jesus, and Jesus pushed back his, what, what makes you think you can see? What makes you think you'd see truth and know truth if it was standing in front of you? It's a good question for us to ask. You know, as we, as we gather and we gather the Christmas season, um, to, to read one further quote from Carson. And Nicodemus should have been considering this. If there's any possibility at all that Jesus is the promised Messiah, it would be far more fitting for Nicodemus to ask himself if he is ready for the Messiah rather than ask if a proper claimant has arrived on the scene. What, what did God do to prepare the way from the Messiah? He sent John the Baptist to call on all the faithful Israelites to humble themselves, to confess their sins, to recognize their need of washing, to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. Right? 
And it's those disciples of John and John the Baptist camp who, without, who don't miss a step, they transition and become disciples of Jesus because they recognize their need. They recognize their uncleanness. They recognize their filth. And they call out to God to, to cleanse them. Well, Nicodemus needs to be born again or born from above if he's to even see the kingdom of God. Okay, point two, the nature of the new birth. The nature of the new birth. And this is a, another pattern that regularly occurs in John. Jesus says something and the people listening to him completely misunderstand it. We've already seen it in chapter two. What sign do you do to do these things? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they think he's talking about Herod's temple and they get all sorts of flustered. Here, Nicodemus does not understand this to be spiritual birth. Nicodemus incredulously thinks of natural birth. And I say incredulously because to him this is a ridiculous concept. How can a man be born when he is old? He doesn't just leave it there. Lest the ridiculousness of what Jesus has just said be missed, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He completely misunderstands Jesus and thinks Jesus is saying something ridiculous. Incredible. So Jesus responds, clarifying. Clarifying. Jesus speaks of spiritual birth. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And I'm going to pause for a moment because there's some discussion and debate over what Jesus is saying here exactly. Um, I'll argue what I believe he's saying, and then I'll try to deal with some of the objections. I believe unless one is born of water and spirit is referring to one birth. There are some who think that means water, natural birth. We talk about the woman's water breaking, even though there's no evidence in the Bible or in the ancient um, resources we have that anyone spoke of it that way. But some think unless one is born of water and the spirit is speaking of two births. First, you have to be born of water, natural birth, and then spirit, supernatural birth. I don't think that's what he's doing because this parallels the other statement. The other statement, unless one is born again, is paralleled with unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Right? So verse 5, the phrase parallels verse 3. So I think being born of water and the Spirit is, is one thing. So your blank here is the birth from above is of water and the Spirit, referring, I believe, to one birth. We'll have to get to in a second what that is. And then he makes it clear he's talking about non-physical birth, but spiritual birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. The blank here. This birth is not of flesh, but from the spirit of God. So to summarize again, Jesus, to clarify, Nicodemus misunderstands, thinks he's talking about a second natural birth. Says, no, no, no but unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And I think with where we're going, he's trying to make his Old Testament text clearer. He's trying to give Nicodemus some more clues of what he's talking about. Because eventually he's going to rebuke Nicodemus for presuming to be the teacher of Israel and not following him. So one of my presuppositions here is Jesus is referencing Old Testament texts. So, okay, born again might be a little too abstract. How about being born of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus? You following me now? And I'm, this, this isn't physical birth. What's born of flesh is flesh, but rather what's born of the spirit is spirit. So then the question is, what Old Testament text 
brings together the notions of water and spirit and birthing or life-giving. And I think the antecedent, if you turn in your Bibles, is Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. There's a lot of discussion over what being born of water and the spirit is. Some have suggested it's baptism. But if that were the case, it couldn't refer to something in the Old Testament. No, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. The, the sharpest rebuke Nicodemus gets is, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things, which assumes what Jesus is saying is building upon, applying, interpreting, referencing Old Testament texts. A teacher of the old, what we call the Old Testament should follow along. I, I think this is the passage, Ezekiel 36, one of the great New Covenant passages in the Bible. Let's start in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. And I'll sprinkle you with clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you see that? Ezekiel references three things. Jesus only picks up on two of them. But the first is, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. From all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I I think that you could fairly summarize that as I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to birth you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to take your stone heart and give you a living heart. And I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I think that's what Jesus is referencing. So in other words, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need this type of top-to-bottom cleansing from God. You need to be cleansed from your sins. You need your heart of stone to be taken and given a heart of flesh, and you need a new spirit put within you if you're ever going to see or enter God's kingdom. He said to the Pharisee and teacher of Israel, and that's equally true for all of us, If Nicodemus hasn't earned, merited, advanced enough, trust me, you and I haven't. And so that's one of the reasons Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you all and all of us in this room, we are equally in need of this. That's what Jesus, I believe, is referencing. Back to John 3. This birth was predicted in Ezekiel. This birth was predicted in Ezekiel. So to summarize, Nicodemus comes with a pleasant enough, cordial enough greeting and Jesus pushes back challenging him are you, are you prepared even have you considered that you may not be qualified to even see me rightly that you might be the one in need of cleansing and a new spirit and a new heart Nicodemus misunderstands Jesus thinks he's talking of natural birth Jesus clarifies he he makes a clearer reference to the Old Testament passage he's speaking of does Nicodemus get it now does Nicodemus say okay I understand now no his next response is seen in verse 4. I'm sorry, not in verse 4, in verse um, 7. There is no response. Jesus, by responding to him, gives us an idea that Nicodemus is still incredulous. The text doesn't say he says anything, but Jesus says, do not marvel, which again presumes Nicodemus is looking agog. What? In other words, and, and, and here's part of the point of how we can see even now the incept, Nicodemus' unbelief. He's just called Jesus the teacher from God. What does Nicodemus do to, with the teacher's teaching? Does he adopt it to say, okay, yes. No, he's marveling. How, how can this be? That's what his final statement's gonna be that brings the rebuke. 
In verse nine, how can these things be? In other words, he's feeling free to independently critique, chew on what Jesus is saying, push back. He's not sitting subserviently under this teacher from God. His, His actions belie his confession. So Jesus is going to further clarify this. And the, and the clarity here is going to further highlight Nicodemus' helplessness. I, I think when we add up all that Jesus says to Nicodemus, it's clear. Nicodemus needs to be humbled. He needs to recognize his insufficiency, his, his sinfulness, his dependency on God to do a work in his heart. And this last statement further emphasizes his um, desperate condition. Jesus gives the analogy of the wind. Jesus gives the analogy of the wind. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So let's consider it first with the analogy of the wind. And Jesus is speaking in a day before, you know, smartphones and weather apps. And I think the truism of what he's saying makes sense. Um, you, you don't see where the wind's going. You don't see where it's coming from, especially in an arid place. We might, with all our trees and grass, you could see the grass from half a mile away moving. But what Jesus' point is saying is apart from something like that, especially in the desert, the wilderness in, in Israel, you don't see the wind moving until it gets to you. And when it gets to you, you don't even feel the wind. He says you hear the sound of it. So what, what's, what's Jesus' point? The wind's movement is inscrutable. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. And its movement is determined by its will. That's what he says, right? The wind blows where it wishes. Now we'd say, oh, it's high pressure fields, low pressure fields. But he's making an analogy. The wind's movement, according to Jesus, is directed by its own will. And you don't know where it's come from. You don't know where it's going. But you can hear its sound. You can become aware that it's present when you hear its sound. It gives off indicators when it's here. So I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it's been. I know it's here. Why? I hear it sound. That's, that's what he highlights in this wind analogy. And then he says, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What does that then mean about the reality of this birth, of those born of the Spirit? Three things which are humbling, which are um, in some senses frightening. Because if, if, if I understand Jesus rightly, he's indicating to Nicodemus and to all of us our desperate need for something we have no power over. Our desperate need for something we have no power over. First, the Spirit sovereignly begets whom he wills. That's the first point of comparison. The wind goes where it wants to go. And if the the birth, the new birth, is like that, then presumably the Spirit begets births where he wants to birth. This is in keeping with the rest of Scripture, but even most importantly, it's in keeping with chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, verse 12. What's the emphasis in the new birth here where the new birth is first introduced in John? What's the emphasis? Children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit, nor of the will of man, but of God. So right in chapter 1, verse 12, this new birth is not the doing of the flesh of man, the will of man. This is a doing of God. 
completely consistent. The wind blows where it wishes. The Spirit births God's children where he wishes. Which means man is powerless and inactive in this birth. Man is powerless. That's the humbling reality that Nicodemus needs to hear. With all of his attainment and advancement and prestige, this is what you and I need to hear. Man is powerless and inactive in this birth. As I said last week, you have as much involvement in your spiritual birth as you do in your natural birth, which is to say, none. And this is the consistent language. In 1 John, John says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Has been born of God. In James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Ephesians 2, when we were there, even when you were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Which, which to try to put this all together clearly, what I'm saying is, you, Terry Schoenfeld said this boldly a few weeks ago from the pulpit, but I think this is where it's most clearly taught. I think it's taught in other places as well. Faith is the result and evidence of the Spirit's birth. Faith is the result and evidence of the Spirit's birth. In other words, let me say it as plainly as I can. I don't think John 3 teaches, or Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, if you'll believe, you'll be born again. I think what he's saying is you're helpless to believe until you're born again. You can't see. You can't respond. You can't rightly understand until God does a work in your heart. So that when you come to faith, you're ultimately born of God. I think that's the statement he's making. Nowhere in chapter 3 do I see Jesus tell Nicodemus or any of us what we can do to be born again. We're told what we can do to be saved, which is believe. Which, let me make another qualification. Being born again is not the same thing as believing. You may look at me quizzically. Let me explain what I mean. The Bible is clear. I said this last week. Salvation comes by faith. If you want to be saved, you must believe. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why do people perish? Because they don't believe. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemnation is from lack of faith. Salvation is by faith. And no one can believe for you. If, if you're in Christ here today, you had to believe. No one exercised faith for you. But what I think the Bible's teaching is, and what, what, what John and Jesus here specifically are teaching is, what enables someone to see and respond is a work of God. God has to open your eyes. This is the, the testimony of Scripture. The veil has to be removed so that you can see the glory of the Son of God. Nicodemus needs God to work in his heart. What's the Holy Spirit doing when he comes? He convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. Nicodemus needs the Holy Spirit to work in his heart. He's helpless apart from that work. The new birth is like the wind. The spirit, the wind, by the way, the play on words here is clear. The word for spirit is the word for wind. 
They're interchangeable. The wind blows where it wishes. We know it's not spirit here because you hear it sound. We know we're talking about wind. But it's the same word in Greek, spirit and wind. In Hebrew and in Greek, the wind blows where it wishes. The spirit births where it wishes, where he wishes, sorry. How do we know when the spirits birth someone? What's the equivalent to hearing it sound? Someone comes to faith. When we see someone come to faith in Jesus, we can be certain the spirit has just blown by. The spirit has just birthed another child of God. There, there is no knowledge of the new birth apart from faith. That's the evidence. That's how we mark it. That's how we identify it. But what Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand, what, Nicodemus, what Jesus wants us to understand is we don't take credit for that new birth. We didn't believe and then got birthed. The day when you saw Jesus as beautiful and you saw your sin as ugly and you saw the judgment of God as fearful was not the day you were smart enough or good enough to get it. It's the day God opened your blind eyes. It's the day God gave you a new heart. It's the day God put his spirit within you. And then you saw and then you understood. And then you of your own will freely reached out to Christ in faith and you were saved. But ultimately, it's God's grace at work. I think this has to be right because this is the humbling truth Nicodemus needs to understand. He thinks far too highly of himself, far too highly of his ability to size up and sit in judgment on Jesus when Jesus' response to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you need God to do a work in your heart. You and I must be born again. And we can't birth ourselves. This is the message of the gospel. All who believe will be saved, but Jesus will later say in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who draw, sent me draws him. When we come to faith, when your family, your sons and daughters, your mother, father, brothers and sisters come to faith, it's because God has done a work in their heart. And we, we should pray to that effect boldly. We're gonna have our closing song. I'll call the worship team up now. Let me have a word of prayer. And let us not kick at this word, but give God the glory, recognize our need. Lord God, we need you to do this work. We need you to open our eyes, to unstop our ears. We need you to give us grace and life. And Lord, we want to give you the glory for this birth and the praise and the credit. We don't want to take one drop or note of credit from it, but recognize that the new birth is entirely of your will and not ours. And so, Lord, we thank you where you have given life. And Lord, where, where there is not yet life, where there is still need for the new birth, we pray and beseech that your spirit would be pleased to birth life. You might make more sons and daughters even in this room now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand. Thank you.